If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. Tonight, we take a deep dive into the IMRU archives and surface with a trip to Key West and a rainbow flag origin claim. But first, the triumph of a muscular junkie. Joe Perignano is an acrobat. He's performed on Broadway and at the Metropolitan Opera House. He was the original crystal man, bringing light and the spark of life to mankind. In Cirque du Soleil's Totem, he's a sexy fitness model. The boy next door with a million dollar smile and a body to die for. And technically, he did die. Because just a few years ago, Joe was a homeless junkie. My name is Joe Putniano, and I am a gymnast contortionist with Cirque du Soleil and the author of Acrobatics. Around the age of eight, I was watching the 1984 Olympics, and I saw gymnastics for the very first time, and I knew in that moment that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was my one religious moment where I felt like God came in and said, this is who you're supposed to be. And I immediately took the cushions off the couch and started flipping. I was trying to mimic exactly what I saw. I couldn't, of course. I intuitively knew what to do, but I just needed kind of the guidance to get there. And a month later, I learned my first backflip, and my parents put me in class. And after that, I took off, you know, like a match to gasoline. And it was just literally became my passion, my everything. I love to talk about gymnastics in the early days because... That was when the passion was so exciting. And I love to talk about how the passion changed later (laughs) in my life into addiction, which is obsession. What were your parents like? They were consumed with their own alcoholism. And since I was the baby, they were kind of done raising kids. They didn't give me what I guess a child needed at that point. And they thought I was okay because of gymnastics. Like I was doing this thing I was really good at and passionate. And I was kind of a good quiet boy, so they didn't think I needed any parenting, which in hindsight we all could see that I really needed some tools at life. But, you know, I love them. When did your addictions begin? Around 15. My progression was very textbook. I started smoking pot and then uh, tried acid, and then it was that whole 90s rave thing in Boston, which was extremely exciting for me because 
it was so opposite of gymnastics. It's actually when I first discovered I was gay. Or I should say accepted I was gay. In the rave world, to me, it, you know, it was like a fantasy where it was like heaven crashed into the earth. And gymnastics was so clean cut, discipline, that this was just the polar opposite. And I, I fell in love with it. So the rave scene definitely introduced me to Crystal and Kay and all the club drugs. And then ultimately I went to Coke and had a problem with that. And then had really bad problem with prescription drugs. And I was kicked out of college twice and sent to rehab. I lost my grants, and I ended up homeless. I thought there was something wrong with me, and there was. I was definitely sick, but I couldn't name it. I couldn't understand there was this desperation inside of me, this urgency. In 12-step recovery, we call it a God-sized hole. That's a good description, and drugs at the time seemed to fill that. It seemed to make me feel complete. So when I was faced with mundane things or going to college or, you know, being a good human being, I couldn't because the addiction was so consuming. And of course, when one's high, they're not going to do the most healthiest things or, or make great judgments or choices. My addiction in college was actually worse than my heroin addiction. I know that sounds odd, but I was able to control heroin a little bit more because I had learned the longer you do drugs, the more you become better at becoming a functioning addict. And I know that's kind of an oxymoron to say a functioning heroin addict, but it becomes medicinal. You learn how to get away with it. The job of an addict in the end becomes how to keep this feeling, do whatever I can to keep it, and make believe and make the rest of the world think that I'm actually not on anything. I could admit what I was doing wasn't good. I, you know, I'd been arrested and all these things. Like it, I had the things in life that one could definitely say you have a problem with drugs and alcohol happening, car accidents and homelessness and uh, overdoses. But the acceptance of actually admitting that this is what I was would mean that I would have to do something about it. So if you don't admit it, then you can kind of live in that state of denial how did heroin make you feel? Heroin is a painkiller. If someone's in a lot of pain, it's an excellent drug. And what I mean by that, it's not a physical pain. We're human beings, we have a lot of internal pain. We have a lot of psychological pain. If for someone who is suffering from that and, and takes heroin, which makes them feel euphoric and numb, as if they're on fire on the inside, they never ever want to let go of something like that. And for me, I had damaged my life so much from previous drugs and, and from the lifestyle of addiction, that once I got to heroin, it was as if God was holding me. And I never, ever wanted him to let me go. When I was high on heroin, I felt safe. I felt protected. I felt loved. I felt cared for. And those are the things that I didn't feel in life. So once I started using this, it seemed like the solution to life. Like, shouldn't one feel better? Is that so wrong? And I would say, no, it's not. It's okay, and people should feel better. Unfortunately, with addiction, especially mine, to keep an addiction going, you're destroying not only your own life, but the lives of those who love you. And then you have to do uh, criminal things to keep a very expensive addiction going, which, of course, I had to do. So, yeah, addiction is the hottest and most difficult full-time job that you can never quit. <laughs> Heroin, in fact, killed you. 
two cardiac deaths, which meant my heart stopped. That was not enough to get me sober. I actually was, uh, I think, 19 or 20, so I was very arrogant in my invincible God years. And I thought I beat death. Look at me. Look how strong I am. I, even this can't kill me. Why were you so unhappy? I don't know. I'm not special. I'm not unique. I'm not some incredible person. I'm just a human, and we all have suffering. What I chose to do with my suffering was destructive, though I thought it was going to save me, but I really hated myself for not making it to the Olympics because that was my destiny. It's what I thought I was going to do, so I felt like a failure every day for the rest of my life. I hated myself for being gay, and I didn't have really good coping tools for life. Transitioning from homeless junkie back to working acrobat, you continued using. When I discovered gymnastics movement, a lot of dancers can relate to this. When they move, they're on fire. There's a lightning inside of them. And then I switched to drugs, which gave me a similar feeling, got sober, and then went back to the origin of my euphoria, which was gymnastics. You would think that would be enough. You would think the disease would be... Uh, satisfied. For me, it wasn't because I was already an addict and I'll never forget I was performing at the Metropolitan Opera House. I was doing Turandot and the lead soprano, Andrea Gruber, was a recovering opiate addict. And here I was, I had just shot up. I tumbled on stage and then I would listen to her aria and pray to God that her voice would just heal me somehow, would get me clean. And those moments I'll never forget because I was absolute desperation sitting there in front of the, the audience thinking that this power would somehow heal me and save me, and it couldn't. Then I knew I was in trouble. When your art can't save you, who can? Well, what did make you stop? Oh, here's the deal with mental illnesses and addictions. What I don't think people understand is that they're progressive and they're fatal. And this is both mental illness and addiction. If you don't treat it, it actually gets worse over the years. I could see this in my own life, and I knew this just from talking to so many therapists throughout my life. And I was terrified of being the 50-year-old guy who was still shooting up. That was the thought that said, this is as good as life will ever be right now at this moment. You, $20, a syringe and a spoon. This is Christmas. This is Thanksgiving. This is your family. This is your love. Do you want more? Of course I did. I just couldn't do it. And at that point, I believed I was way too sick to recover. Before, I didn't think I had a problem. And now I thought my problem was too severe to actually get clean. When I went to 12-step, I was like, these people are just, you know, light users in comparison to what I did. But that's the arrogance of Joe <laughs> and the arrogance of addiction and ego. Of course, lots of them use like I did. People do every day right now. It was that thought along with this tiny flicker inside of me, this flame, this spark of life would not extinguish. And it's the worst feeling to want to kill it, 
but to have hope not die. It's so much easier to surrender, you know, fully. It wouldn't. So that coupled with the thought of growing old as an addict was just like you have got to give everything you have to get better. And I did. How long have you been sober? I'll have eight years on March 25th, hopefully, if I stay sober till then. Hopefully. So it's still a struggle. It's not a struggle where I think I'm going to just shoot up. But yeah, life is difficult. Life is difficult for everyone. And it's the behavior that is attached to addiction. The first two years of sobriety, I held on for dear life, not to use heroin. Every day, it was, it was very difficult, which is really my message out there to anyone with an addiction is to not give up because I didn't just get clean overnight. I was in 12-step and rehabs from age 19 to 29, failing. So if you're out there and you are suffering and you... You are like me and you can't do it. Just don't give up. Don't give up. If you have a pulse and a heartbeat, you have a chance. This has been a conversation with Joe Perignano, author of Acrobatic, a contortionist heroin romance. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Joe Putinano is now a registered nurse in Boston. Now let's lighten the mood with the Nellie Olson Improv Troupe and the song stylings of our producer, Steve Pride. the Nellie Olsons. I'm Nora Burns. I'm Terrence Michael. I'm John Cantwell. And I'm Marissa Copeland. If you're looking for a codependent lesbian relationship with a needy woman, call me. I'm waiting. I'll move in with you. I'll become allergic to your cats and when you give them away, I'll break up with you. Is that how you like it? Oh, call me. I'll wear your clothes. We'll go get counseling together and adopt a Nicaraguan crack baby and then I'll sleep with all your friends. Is that how you like it? Oh, call me. Oh, Mama, you're so good to me. I'll stalk you till you take out a restraining order on me. Is that how you like it? Oh, call me. I've got some hot, steamy issues for you. We'll process everything. I'll make your life hell. Call me. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody, it's Boy Jackie. Wow, what an attractive crowd. Everyone here is so good looking. I mean it. Everyone's so good. Whoa. Thank you, sir, for breaking the monotony. Excuse me, is this your wife? Hey, baby doll, wanna carry my child? Just to the corner, it can take the butt from there. Ha ha, you know, I've got an American flag tattooed on my chest. Flag pulls a little further down. Seriously, dog face, you wanna play doctor? You can be the receptionist. Wait, don't leave, I got a million of them. Don't go away, we'll be right back after this quick break. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. 
We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Cleve Jones, and you are listening to IMRU. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Travel features don't usually age well, but this visit to the Conch Republic remains valid. Key West is a city and an island of the same name at the southernmost tip of the continental United States. It's closer to Havana than Miami, about half the distance, and not real big, only 7.4 square miles. It was where Tennessee Williams wrote A Streetcar Named Desire, and it was the first U.S. town to elect an openly gay mayor. The official motto of Key West is, One Human Family, and to the people that live there, it's more than words on a bumper sticker. Recently I spent time in Key West, and I want to introduce you to some of the people I met there. So I'll shut up now and let them talk. My name is Carol Shaughnessy. I'm a writer and a almost 30-year Key West resident. I came down here as a naive 20-year-old Minnesota girl. I found a small town where people were friendly. The weather was gorgeous. You were accepted for who you were 
And the community gave you the latitude to grow into who you wanted to be. You're judged not on externals, but on what you have to give and uh, what kind of uh, commitment you want to make to the community. It's much more about what's in your heart than what's in your wallet. I found that lack of pretentiousness and that straightforward friendliness to be incredible. I've been here now for almost 30 years, and I can't imagine living anywhere else. Hi, I'm Tom Oosterhout. I've lived in Key West almost 25 years now. The 70s and 80s were a whole different thing. The Keys was the wild, wild west. This was the center of drug imports for much of America. So you had marijuana and coke flowing. You had a very open gay society because it was pre-AIDS. And I look back, and that certainly was a different time and place than what we have today. Of course, with AIDS, the whole sexual revolution came to a grinding halt and uh, the feds cracking down on drug running and all that. The whole nature of the Keys and Key West was tamed by the late 80s and 90s. So the Key West you see today is a very tamed Key West, although it's still a wonderful place that cherishes its diversity. Although many major metropolitan cities claim huge ethnic populations, Key West, we have just about everybody represented here, but because it's a one and a half mile by four mile long island, it's tiny and we all have to work and play side by side. So if you're gay, straight, black, white, Catholic, Jew, whatever, you're uh, working side by side with someone that's probably very different than you. I mean, they could be a gay, black, Puerto Rican you never know here. So not only do we cherish our diversity, we live it. We uh, make it a way of life. When I first came to Key West in the late 70s, it was definitely not a tourist community. It was a commercial fishing community. And again, it was quite poor at that time. The gay community played an incredible part in the revitalization of Key West, buying the old beautiful Victorians, which unfortunately mostly were held together by termite spit because, as I said, it was a poor community, restoring these houses to their former glory, opening guest houses, opening businesses. The gay community played a very big and very welcome part in the creation of the Key West that visitors will see today. My name is Neil Chamberlain. I'm a resident of Key West. I own the gay information website, pistolandenema.com, the largest gay information website in Key West. Running a business in Key West can be very difficult, can be very trying at times. I'm very fortunate in the business I run. I love it. Not many people can do what they love and make a living at it. I get to go out to the clubs, hang out with my friends, meet new people constantly. When you get into the gay and straight lines, there are many people that have been coming here since the early 80s and 90s that wanted to stay at like a male-only resort or a female-only resort. They kind of made their own segregation in a way by doing that. Even though they were welcome anywhere in Key West, they felt more comfortable in the company of just men or just women. We are a very blended community, and I think in a way it has hurt us in the fact that some people do want to come down and stay at a gay resort or go to a gay club. Technically, we have just a few gay clubs in a small area. However, all of our clubs are all welcome. But a lot of people, when they come down, they say, what gives? This is supposed to be such a gay community. Why are there only five gay clubs? Well, there are five clubs that are identified as gay, but you know, there's another 70 that anyone can go into. 
My name is Heather Carruthers, and I'm a co-owner of Pearl's Rainbow here in Key West. Pearl's Rainbow is the largest resort for women in the world. We've got 38 rooms and suites and two pools, two hot tubs, a restaurant, a poolside bar. All our rooms have private baths. We've been in existence since 2000. The property itself has been here and operating as a women's space since 1989. Hello, I'm Gary Walker from the Equator Resort in Key West, Florida. The Equator Resort's going on its 10th year here in Key West. We have all male. I'd say the average age is anywhere between, I'd say, 35 to 45. We have 19 rooms here on site, and it has that southern hospitality. I'm a southern girl, honey. <laughs> My name is Philippe, working at Alexander's Guest House. The Guest House has been uh, open, gay, lesbian for the past 25 years. We have mostly couples, I would say, from 25 up to 75, yeah. And the 75, they've been together for like 30 years and 40 years, and they've been here for like the past 10 years, year after year. They always come back. Jerry Tinlin, I'm the Vice President and General Manager of Oasis Coral Tree Inn and Coconut Grove. People who come down here often, often buy down here because they love that laid-back, easy-going lifestyle I think one of the big attractions is that this is the end of the road. You can't go any further than Key West. That's out into the ocean, 160 miles off the mainland. Those are attractions to people who can afford to buy a second home here, which is a lot of the commerce that goes on, or buy a home here and move here. Hi, I'm Martha Robinson. I am a full-time realtor for 20 years in Key West, Florida. We've had a wonderful ride for many, many years. We've watched everybody renovate our homes and the conch houses and in Newtown, Old Town, Midtown, and then um, with the hurricanes, so many of them last year. And then we had the flood for the last one, Wilma, and that kind of devastated a lot of folks. It was very, very difficult, and everything just seemed to stop. In my opinion, this adjustment has not been so horrible because it is allowing other people to buy right now. I have a customer who's in the dog grooming business and he's always wanted to buy a home and couldn't and now we are able to get him into the market. So things like that are happening. I mean, we're talking about four and $500,000 as being affordable. However, a little tiny condominium unit did just sell in the $269,000 range. I can't imagine living anywhere else, but the cost of living is very high. And a lot of people come here with the idea of living in paradise. And it is paradise, but it's an expensive paradise. Employment is very tough down here. Or getting good employees is tough. We jokingly say anybody that shows up for work on the second day is a long-term employee. There's plenty of jobs. If you're willing to come down here and work hard, you'll do fine. I'm not quite ready to move, but I can't wait to get back there for a visit. My thanks to Carol, Tom, Neil, Heather, Philippe, Jerry, and Martha. In part two of our visit, we'll meet a few more island folk, including the head of the Key West Rooster Rescue, a new go-go boy who heals with his hands, and the former queen mother of Key West. More info about Key West can be found online at pistolandenema.com, and as always, there's more at prideonscreen.com. Until next time, this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Nibbling on sponge cake Watching the sun bake All of those tourists Covered with oil Strumming my six strings Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out loud and proud since 1974. Hello, I'm Steve Pride. 
Last time, I introduced some people I met in Key West, and they shared their stories. In this final part of the adventure, we'll be rejoining the tour. For your safety and comfort, please remain seated at all times, even while taking pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the all aboard from Ryan the Conductor, so we'll be on our way. Hi, I'm Steve Smith. I work for the Florida Keys Tourism Office. I'm a sales manager for the gay and lesbian markets. When they did the census in 2000, one of the boxes that we all got to check if we chose to do it was, are you in a same-sex domestic partnership situation? When those numbers were compiled, you got to remember, we're two miles by four miles. We're closer to Cuba than to the United States of America. We had per capita more same-sex couples than any other city in the United States. Isn't that an interesting thing? I'm J.T. Thompson, and I am the founder of One Human Family Foundation, which has a mission of promoting equality and unity for all people around the world. I came up with the words One Human Family, started printing them on bumper stickers. I printed 2,000 originally, and since then we've given out over 700,000 stickers all over the world. The city commission in October of 2000 made One Human Family the official philosophy of Key West. In many places, there is a tremendous pressure to be as average, as ordinary, as common, and blend in as much as possible. And in Key West, people are really rewarded for being creative and unique and different. So this really is the perfect community for One Human Family to take hold because there's very little in the way of judgment that goes on. We attract eccentrics here. I'm Kathy Sheehan. My store is the Chicken Store, and I'm captain of the Rooster Rescue Team in Key West. It's kind of a traditional thing here to have the free-ranging chickens in the streets and under the houses and in the backyards. We have the most profound respect for the chickens. They are quasi-protected. Most people will stop you from doing anything harmful to them, stop you from chasing them and so forth. And then you try and take something to the state attorney and uh, they lose the uh, files or something. So I have to ask before I leave, what exactly is a street chicken? Uh, it's like a chicken gone bad. <laughs> a street chicken is a uh, chicken that belongs to himself. He doesn't belong to anybody else. And uh, he lives by his wits and uh, thumbs his nose at rules and regulations. My name's Brad. I lived in Key West for seven years. I do whatever I like, and Key West is a place that allows me to do that. And primarily, my life revolves around helping people heal. I do that through touch, and I do it by using sound, by using ceremonies that I create myself. So I'm somewhat of a magician, really, and <laughs> in a way, um, I've been influenced a lot by Native American traditions and even by shamanic traditions of Siberia. I prefer to help people heal sexually and erotically, so I work with erotic energy. I like to bring people to full states of erotic and sexual ecstasy, and I just chose to be a dancer because it allows me to do that with numerous people every night. But it seems to be much more effective when I can do it one-on-one -on -one with someone in a much quieter place. So I've created a, a sanctuary in my home for sexual healing. Who am I? Richard, Richard Dennison. The Queen Mother is a wild little pageant. It's actually the highest drag title that you can have on the island, and you have to really earn it. Um, you can be pretty, you can have expensive gowns, you can have a wonderful talent number, but if you haven't given to the community, and I competed three years and was first runner-up three years in a row, 
And finally, on the fourth try, I won it. After Wilma hit, we had like six foot of water in our home, and uh, everything was destroyed. My other half and I are getting ready to walk out the house to a friend's home that was in the dry section. And as we were walking out, he said, if there's anything in this house that you want, you better grab it now. I turned around and looked, and the only thing I saw that I really wanted was my queen mother crown. I picked it up, I put it on my head, I grabbed my two pups, and down the street we walked, waving at the crowd as we walked through five foot of water. This is a melting pot. It's just a wonderful place where people are free to be individuals as opposed to belonging to some kind of a group or having to affiliate themselves with a group of other people in order to get by. Here we really respect the individual as he or she is pretty much on their own terms. And that's what's so beautiful about it. My name is Carol Shaughnessy. You never know who you're going to be spending time with because this is such a wildly, cheerfully diverse community. You go into a restaurant and you might be sitting next to someone who has just arrived from Berlin, or you might be sitting next to the president of a bank, or you might be sitting next to a drag queen, or you might be sitting next to a drag queen who is the president of a bank. And everybody gets along. I know that sounds like a Pollyanna world, but it's absolutely true, and and come down and see for yourself. But according to Neil Chamberlain, even paradise has a downside. It's very difficult to date in Key West. Basically, when we go into low season, there are so few tourists coming in that we begin to sleep with our locals, and we call that sister season. And during low season, people seem to, like, pair off. All of a sudden, you have a boyfriend for the summer. And then as soon as the fall hits and it starts getting cooler again and tourists start coming to town, I think it's time to be single again. (laughs) The Business Guild website is Gay Key West FL for Florida. F is in Frank, L is in Lucy. GayQSFL.com. You also can go to the Florida Keys website, which is FLA-Keys.com, or check out PistolAndEnema.com. That website always has a little bit of daily gossip. Whatever happened last night is on there. And you know what? We don't mind telling you you were a mess last night when you were laying on the sidewalk. Or we might say, who was that gorgeous guy you were talking to or that gorgeous girl you were talking to? So it's about having fun here and when you live here and you work here, it's like being on vacation every day. It spoiled me now because when I go on vacation, I keep wondering why I left home. Well, that's the end of our stay in paradise. My thanks to Steve, Katha, Carol, Neil, Richard, and a very, very special thanks to Brad. Also thanks to the Island House Resort, where I stayed, for making an old guy comfortable with the words clothing optional, and to Chef Michael at Antonio's Restaurant for making food so great, I don't regret any of the weight I gained. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I'm headed for the almost didn't rebroadcast this piece over its description of a long-ago hurricane. Then we realized in South Florida there's always a hurricane. Plus, Steve Smith died last week. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Let's date. Let's date. Cause we're both something special. Not straight.
reruns of Will and Grace. Let's fornicate. It's the time check. It's the time check. It's the time check now. It's quarter two. Oh, I must get a little hand put on that watch. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am, Are You? I am, are you? I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to I Am, Are You? Radio Magazine. Our producer was cyberbullied on Facebook last week when he mentioned Lynn Segerblom's role in 1978. It contradicts a popular urban legend, but Lynn brought the receipts, and lawyer Abby Dees was convinced. We all know the rainbow flag. I have a rainbow sticker on my car right now, but how many of us know the story of how our rainbow flag really came to be? Our next guest is here to tell us that story. She knows because she was there. Known at the time as Fairy Argyle Rainbow, she is also known as Lynn Sagerblom. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Abby. I'm going to get right to it. Who created the rainbow flag? Who came up with the design idea or physically making it? There were three of us and a bunch of volunteers. Mm-hmm. Every day, some volunteers would show up to the top floor gallery and say, we're here to help. And some days it'd be the same few people, and sometimes there'd be new people. But there were three of us, one of us that did the dyeing, that was myself, and three of us that did the sewing I only sewed at the end when we were pressed for time and all the dyeing was done because it was 1,000 yards of white cotton muslin that we hand-dyed the rainbow colors in. So I was so busy with those buckets of dye and water, and I needed helpers helping me do that. And then Gilbert Baker and James McNamara were down in the third floor gallery with the sewing machines. Putting and, it all together. Mm-hmm. And I brought my sewing machine in. Other people were using that one, cutting, pinning, ironing, everything after it's dyed, washed in the washer, and dried. And it has to be ironed. A 60-foot-long flag. So 1978, you're in San Francisco. What was the impetus to create a flag at all? I was renting space at the Gay Community Center. I was already there making my tie-dyes and clothing and fabrics that I worked with designers on. And I had a little studio space there that I rented. So I think Lee came to me and said, do I want to be on the decorating committee? And I said, sure. Everything was much more casual in those days. Nothing was fancy. It was all volunteers. Nobody's getting paid to work in the office or... Where we're actually a community? Yeah. Yeah. 330 Grove Street in San Francisco. Yeah, it was a good place. My sense, though, is that just the little bit that I was reading about that time, there was an awareness that the eyes of the world might actually be on San Francisco and what we called the gay community at the time. And so 
did the flag sort of come out of that awareness? You know, this morning I was writing to one of the people involved in this whole project. I wanted to ask him, what was the exact date of the assassination of Moscone and Milk? What was the exact date? I don't, I don't know. We can look at that? You know, I think it was after this parade. Really? So Harvey Milk died. You're right. 1927, 1978. Was it after June? Yeah, it was after June. Yes. I remember him. He was at the parade and he loved the flags. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Harvey Milk hasn't just died. I really thought that the flag came about because there was so much news coverage, but it looks like, no, there was just this firmament was already there of we're coming forward, we're stepping up. Yeah. And he was part of that. He used to come in in and out of the Gay Community Center, and that's where he gave his hope speech. Mm -hmm. But uh, to be honest, yes, I I met him, but it wasn't like uh, anything because we were always running around like trying to get the work done. So we were busy. Everybody was. There was a lot of organizing to try and put this parade on. The flags came first. Yeah, and I have this sense of the flag being something very joyful and very positive. That was the whole point. Yeah. Joyful, positive. We wanted it to be beautiful. And Why a rainbow? Because that was my last name, and that was like I dyed a lot of clothing, costumes, and fabric with rainbows on them, and I love rainbows back then. And I thought, well, because at the meeting we were like, what should they be? And Gilbert was like, oh, let's do bunting on City Hall, which is just draped fabric yeah. of one color. Old-fashioned parade yeah. decoration, yeah. And then somehow I came up with the idea of, what about rainbow flags? Wouldn't that be nice? And I had some sketches. But Gilbert was not there at that meeting where we decided that it's going to be rainbow flags. I and the original was. flag was eight colors. Yes. And it had pink. I When I was yes. looking at them, I thought, oh, my gosh, we lost pink. And we lost purple, too. We lost purple, which is so funny because those are so associated with our community. And the other one is I put two different kinds of blue on mm-hmm. purpose. I put the aqua blue and the royal blue. Why? Because I just love those colors. And to me, they're two different colors. In doing all the dyeing, I was just like, well, we have to have those. It goes pink, red, orange, yellow, green, a nice strong green, aqua blue, and then royal blue, and then violet. Did the colors originally have particular meaning, or was it just that they looked nice, or they were... No, no? there was no particular meaning. Mm -hmm. And then there's a weird thing that some people had never noticed about the two big flags of that day on 1978. One has pink at the top and violet at the bottom, and the other one has pink at the bottom and violet at the top. Is that just because it was hung upside down? No, I did that on purpose. Really? Why? Because yeah. I want them to be different. Oh. So, you know, this is on purpose. It's my thing. Yeah. And there were two more differences that nobody seems to... It was the other difference that one of them was based on the American flag? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was considered my flag because I did the star blocking with wood blocks and dyes. I love American flags. I don't know. It's so funny because I actually bought a rainbow flag right after the Women's March. I thought, I need a flag for marching with because you do. And I bought a rainbow American flag. So where the stripes are the rainbow. And I thought, oh, well, this is somebody's fun play on this. And it was so wonderful to realize, no, actually, this was an original flag. It was for real. And you did that. Yes. Thank you. 
Thank you, Abby. <laughs> and there's one more weird thing. Okay. Okay, I just have to show it to you on this We're looking at some amazing photo. photographs of the original flags flying. See the American flag here, the rainbow American flag? Yes. Okay, we've got our eight colors. Mm -hmm. We've got our stars in the corner. Mm -hmm. And you see that thing right there? It looks like another star right in the middle of a stripe. Yeah, it's in the aqua blue stripe. I sewed a piece of LeMay. It's silver, a silver star in LeMay on the aqua blue stripe. And then if you look at the other side, it's gold LeMay. They're right on each other oh, in yeah. the aqua stripe. Because I had some silver and gold LeMay from the Angels of Light Theater company that I'm, my costumes, I had scraps. So I was like, oh, we need a bit of glitter. <laughs> so I put silver on one side and gold on the other. And then you just stitch it and they line up and it's sturdy. So we lost pink, purple, and LeMay. That just seems wrong. Yes, it does. <laughs> and I guess in some of the flags, there's just blue, royal blue, mm -hmm. no aqua. Yeah. This is Abby Dees. And Wenzel Jones, and you're listening to IMRE Radio. We're talking with Lynn Segerblom about the origins of the rainbow flag. So when you look at the flags now, when you see that now we have a six-color flag typically, although people do variants, mm -hmm. how do you feel when you look at it? Oh, it's beautiful. I love it. You feel a sense of, of ownership of it? It makes me happy when I see the rainbow flags. Even if they're polyester, even if they're six colors, they're there. Yeah. Do you think about those times of when you created it, or do you think of how it's evolved? Yeah. Gilbert needs all the credit for pounding the pavement and promoting the flags and stuff. But really, his flag was different from mine. The original flags that we made in 78, his were six colors. There was no stars and stripes. It was just stripes. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have the LeMay star, and they were polyester because it's really hard to do hand-dyed fabric. Yeah, and I'm still getting my head around the fact that this is a 60-foot-long flag. Yeah. Why did it need to be so big? Well, because at UN Plaza, those two flagpoles, they're 80 feet tall. And there's two of them, so we know we need two flags. And then James and I started figuring out, well, if it's 80 feet tall, the flag should be... Some people say it was 40 by 60, but I think it was 30 by 60. Mm -hmm. We wish we could find one of these and That's my next question. We don't know where they are. They were stolen sometime after 78 and before the parade in 79. I was still at the Gay Community Center working there with my little studio. And I remember I was in the top floor gallery with Lee and Gilbert came in and said the flags have been stolen. Had they been kept at, at the, the gay top floor gallery the in the Gay Community Centers? Yes, they were on a pedestal folded up. It takes at least two hulking people to haul one flag. I think we had three people on each flag once it was folded up to get it in and out of the truck and carry it to the spot. You need two to three people. It's very heavy. Those weigh a lot. Yeah, that's So it weird. was a group of people that stole them. Somebody one knows. person could not do it alone. Somebody knows where those flags are. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. Let me just say yeah. that. That really broke my heart. This is Abby Dees from IMRU Radio, and I'm talking with Lynn Sagerblom, also known as Fairy Argyle Rainbow, one of the creators of the rainbow flag. Before we started recording, you talked a bit about the people. Who were the people that, and what the community was? We used the term gay, mm -hmm. which was sort of our catch-all at the time, but... You've described something more like what we talk about when we talk about the queer community now. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about who you perceived the community that this flag represented to be. I just thought it was everyone, our friends, our circle. It was in a theater company. We had a lot of 
gender bending guys dressed as girls, girls dressed as guys. I know I went through a time where I used to wear suit and ties, men's clothes and hats, fedoras and stuff like that. And it was all for fun. And I knew some very good artists too, that whole group, Mm -hmm. the top floor gallery and all that. And the Princess of Argyle and Lee Mintley, the salons that they put on with the artists, you know, displaying. But it wasn't an exclusively gay group. No, but I don't think it mattered. It really didn't matter to me, to be honest. You didn't identify as gay. I did have a girlfriend way back then Mm -hmm. for a while, but she was in love with my boyfriend, (laughs) and it turned out to be a big mess. I was really young, and I really didn't have any experience when I came to San Francisco. I was still a virgin. So what do I know? What a place Uh, to go as a virgin. (laughs) What does it matter, you know? I didn't think it was, like, such a big deal. So you like blue shoes, Mm -hmm. and I like pink shoes. Mm -hmm. But that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. To me, it was just like, we're friends. Hey, this is going to—we're going to make some flags. We're going to do some dyeing. We're going to make some clothes. Do you want to be part of it? What does the flag mean to you now? Like, I know it brings up memories, but what do you think it represents? It stands for the whole— LGBTQ, however you want to say it, community. But to me, it's also straight people. It's a flag for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also people's color of skin, that really doesn't matter. That just is another item. Like to me, I think rainbow includes every color of person, you know, and gender, whatever. And it's just like. And they go together nicely. People have been using the rainbow symbol for centuries. It's not new. So I had always heard the story of the flag that it was sort of one person, our own sort of Betsy Ross, Gilbert Baker, who you've talked about. And the funny thing is, is we know Betsy Ross didn't really do the American flag. That story is not really true. true. And Gilbert Baker was an activist who recently died. But listening to you, I hear that it wasn't just Gilbert Baker. It was all of you. You were key to this. You had the rainbow name, not only that, but you had the rainbow concept and he was sewing and you were dying and people were carrying and schlepping and buying and all of this stuff. How did we lose this story? At the point when the flags became stolen, I left for Marin County. I had a friend who rented an apartment and said, come be my roommate. He had a girlfriend named Trisha. We lived in Sausalito. It was affordable back then. It wasn't like how it is now. Mm -hmm. And that whole thing of the stealing of the flags, I just couldn't understand how somebody would do that. And I feel like I just fled. Plus my major clothing designer that I dyed all her silks for her lines, she moved from San Francisco to Marin. So for a while, I was taking a bus over to work in her workshop, and then I just moved over there, and then, you know, I was gone. Mm -hmm. So it would be easy for Gilbert to come in and take all the credit because James McNamara, although he was still alive at that point, he did pass away from AIDS, Mm -hmm. okay? And James McNamara taught Gilbert how to sew. We couldn't have done it without James McNamara, okay? Gilbert and James were friends before, but they had parted ways. And I'm in Marin. I'm out of touch. Oh, this was key. 330 Grove got torn down and made into a parking lot, so there was nowhere to meet up for us. Mm-hmm. So the group sort of fractured. Things fractured. Yeah. And, yeah. and so Gilbert Baker kind of took the narrative, it sounds like. 
it was ripe. He could just grab it. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another. He exaggerated. And then, you know, it was just. Do you feel at all sort of resentful about that? Or how do you feel? I try not to think too heavily on it okay. because if I did, I could really be angry. And I also feel really hurt. And it's also wrong. Does anybody own the flag? No. Certainly it doesn't sound like there is any copyright issue or anything. No one's making any of that claim like no. that. Yeah. And uh, even if they did, his flag was different. He had six colors mm-hmm. usually, and it was polyester. When you see the flag and the, all the variations that people have done, you know, I read that in some cities they've added an extra color to represent their city. Mm-hmm. I've got a little rainbow heart on the back of my car right now in the parking lot. People putting their symbols on top of it. How does that make you feel? That's okay. Yeah. Why not? Let's spread the rainbow. It doesn't offend sort of your designer sensibilities? No, no, because um, I'm secure and I know what I did. Yeah. And even though I hadn't got credit for it, except with a few people, friends, I know what I did. Mm -hmm. And so if they want to add to it, hey, why not take the rainbow and make it yours, how you like it? It sounds like as you talk about this that you're also, it's not, yes, you want the story told accurately and you want to be back in the story Mm because you were there. But it also sounds like you are kind of pining for a spirit of that time, where it wasn't just one gay man running with a vision. It was all sorts of people coming together for a vision, not for money, Yes, but for a vision. Is that right? Yes, that would be great. And, you know, back then, um, we were all volunteers, but we, things were, we lived like gypsies, and we got things out of free boxes, and we were We were vegetarians back then. We ate a lot of brown rice and (laughs) tofu, and rents were not expensive yet. Yeah, San Francisco was a different city. It was very, very different. And um, people came together at that 330 Grove and also that theater company that I belonged to, the Angels of Light, that put on free shows. That Which was, is where you got your, your name, Mary yeah. Argyle Rainbow. Yeah, the Princess of Argyle named me Fairy, and then... Her name was Argyle, so I thought that would be great. I'll take that name. And then we had a friend named Rainbow Stars. And also I loved rainbows, and I was doing a lot of rainbow tie-dyes. Later in some interview, Gilbert says he named me Fairy Argyle Rainbow in 79 or something or 80, which is a complete utter lie. It's like completely not true. Do you think we can get back to a time like that? Do you think we can have moments like that again? I think we could have the spirit of it, that we could regenerate it. Because it's really, yes, we made stuff, but we also created a feeling. Yeah. Lawyer Abby Dees was convinced of Lynn's veracity by her evidence before she would do this interview. But the past is dependent on point of view. So we ask, wouldn't you rather know the truth rather than the legend? Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, 
Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. I'm David Hunt. You can find me at tellmedavid.com. So long, and thanks for listening. <laughs>